coming up on the exam room. This is a bit of a surprise. Cholesterol does not drop very well on a Mediterranean diet. But when it came to blood pressure, the people in the vegan group, their blood pressure came down, but it came down even more in the Mediterranean group. And that, Chuck, is not a fluke. And I got to tell you, Chuck, if I had to guess, it's not the low-fat milk. It's not the chicken. It's not the fish. I think it's the polyphenols in the extra virgin olive oil. I think that's what is actually doing it. They seem to have a, a blood pressure lowering effect. The reason olive oil has polyphenols is it comes from an olive. An olive is a fruit. And all of its fruit cousins are loaded with polyphenols. And the point about olive oil being a good source is just that they go to the factory and they just really concentrate it in a form that nature didn't really intend. So they're concentrating the polyphenols, they're concentrating the calories and all fat bears. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in West Jordan, Utah, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Berlin, Germany. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 87 of season 6, number 483 overall. And cool to get Virginia Beach mentioned. Looking forward to heading down that way to my old stomping grounds of Hampton Roads this weekend for the Hampton Roads VegFest. That's going to be on Saturday, October 28th at the Chesapeake City Park in neighboring Chesapeake. I'm going to be taking the stage right around 2.15. So come on out and say hi, Hampton Roads. Would love to see you. I'll tell you all about growing up in Norfolk and just we'll have a grand old time. Talk a lot about food addiction, too, I'm sure. And there's a link to everything that you need to know about the Hampton Roads Veg Fest in the episode notes. It's going to be a great time. The whole thing runs 11 to 5. But that's this weekend. Let's talk about today. Because today is Diet Comparison Day. And we are spotlighting the Mediterranean diet and the vegan diet. You know, both of them have been touted for their extraordinary health benefits. But... Which one is really king here? Which one rules the roost? That's what our researchers at the Physicians Committee wanted to find out. They wanted to put them to the test. So what they did was they went out and they recruited dozens and dozens of participants and they said, hey, do the Mediterranean diet for a while and then do the vegan diet for a while. And then let's look at the results and see which comes out on top. And as a matter of fact, this study was so highly regarded and so well done that we just picked up an award for that. So we're going to be talking about that during our conversation today with Dr. Neil Barnard. We're actually going to be revisiting the study because the initial findings were published a couple of years ago, but in an update, there are some new wrinkles because there has been additional research now comparing the two diets. So Dr. Barnard is going to get into that with us. Also, we're opening up the doctor's mailbag, taking some other questions that extend beyond just our Mediterranean and vegan diet comparison today. We're going to be talking about edamame's effects on hot flashes, reversing bone loss, the difference between amino acids that are found in meat and the ones that are found in food that comes from plants. And those are just a few that came into the doctor's mailbag from the exam room live this week. And all of that is coming your way right now. And we begin with Dr. Barnard 
and the conversation about Mediterranean and vegan diets and how they compare. Let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Barnard to the exam room live. Great to see you. Great to see you, Chuck. Now, before we get into Mediterranean versus vegan diets and the results of the study, congratulations are, in fact, in order to our entire research team who really put together this amazing head-to-head diet comparison. Well, yes, I'm happy to say um, it was a bit of a challenge because people don't necessarily want to hear the truth about what kind of diets do well and which ones don't do well. Um, However, uh, the Journal of the American College of Nutrition uh, did publish this. And we just got a notice that they considered it one of the very best manuscripts of the year and let our research team uh, know about it. And Hannah Kaliova went down to Charlotte the other day and picked up the award for the team. Yeah, our our friend Dr. Kaliova picking up the award from the American Nutrition Association, the Charles E. Regas Award. So thank you guys so very much for that incredible honor and congratulations to Hannah and the entire team for such an extraordinary study, which we're going to be talking about here in just a minute. But before we do, a very special invitation from our friends, the Esselstyn family. So here now, a couple of words from Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, along with Rip and and. Jane, an invitation for you. Please join us for a night to remember in Washington, D.C. We are honored to be receiving the Midge Stuber Ambassador Award for a Better World at the National Press Club on November 7th. We're going to celebrate by joining Dr. Neil Barnard, Chuck Carroll, and all of our friends at PCRM for a live recording of the Exam Room podcast. And we would love for you to be there as well. So come on out and let's have some fun and reflect on this incredible journey. Woohoo! It is going to be such a fun night. How much uh, red do you have in your closet, Dr. Barnard? Because everybody that night is going to be wearing red in honor of the incredible work that the Esselstons have done for heart health. Uh, I think everything in my closet is either white or maybe light blue. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, take it back. I have a Ferrari sweatshirt. Wear it. And it is, it is the brightest red you've ever seen. That's what I'm going to wear. Where There you go. See, even though you're a Lewis Hamilton guy, which is Mercedes, <laughs> wear the Ferrari and just be a Charles Leclerc fan or a Carlos Sainz fan for the night. That's a Formula One reference for you guys. Yeah, so go ahead and do that. So uh, November 7th at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., a very special live recording of the Exam Room podcast. We're going to be giving the Midge Struber Ambassador for a Better World Award to the Esselstons in honor of their incredible legacy, everything that they have contributed to our health world and making the world a healthier place. They certainly deserve it. And we're going to have a whole heck of a lot of fun as well, Dr. Barnard. I don't know if if you're ready for Anne and Jane in particular, because those are two wild and crazy women, man. Let me tell you. They well, I've known them both for a long time, and they have hearts of gold. And but they're also very tough um, when it comes to maintaining their athletic prowess and so forth. So the whole Esselstyn family is is just wonderful. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. So join us. November 7th, the National Press Club right here in Washington, D.C. PCRM.org slash events is the place to go to pick up your tickets. And there's a link right now also in the episode notes. Uh, But Dr. Barnard, let's turn our attention to the vegan and Mediterranean diet study, the topic at hand today. And as you were telling me, this is kind of, if you're a fan of the Mediterranean diet, the researchers here, our award-winning researchers, kind of stumbled across a good news, bad news situation for Mediterranean diets in this analysis. What did we find? 
That's right. Um, well, first of all, uh, there's the data from our study, but there are a number of other studies that are really bringing us in an interesting direction from our study. The first thing was, okay, people are often told to go on a Mediterranean diet to get their cholesterol down, to protect their heart, to lose a few pounds. And so we decided to put it to the test. We brought in 62 people who had weight they wanted to lose. Half of them went Mediterranean with a lot of support. The other half went vegan with a lot of support. And after 16 weeks, they switched diets. So everybody got both diets in a random order. And the first thing I have to say, Chuck, is that the Mediterranean diet, when it comes to weight loss, it is frustrating. The participants assigned to that diet, they first thought, wow, you know, isn't this great? You get to eat fish and olive oil and all these foods that they loved. But then when does the weight loss start? And it just never did. The the average weight loss on the Mediterranean diet was 0.0. The vegan diet, once people switched to going on the vegan diet, they started to lose weight like crazy. And over a 16-week period, your average person lost about 13 pounds or a little bit more than that. So um, the the weight loss was was the first finding. Uh, Not good for the Mediterranean diet, score one for vegan. All right. So were the participants assigned specific menus? How were their, you know, how was the diet really prescribed for them? Okay. Great question, Chuck. Um, With both diets, you don't tell them exactly, here's what you have to have for breakfast. You must eat this for lunch. What you do is give them the parameters of the diet and within that they can choose. So on a plant-based diet, it was no animal products, keep oils really low, That was about it. And so they could pick pancakes for breakfast, you know, no butter uh, or scrambled tofu or whatever. And for lunch, it might be a bean burrito or spaghetti with tomato sauce, not the meat sauce. They could choose. There was no limit on calories, no limit on carbohydrate. Now for the Mediterranean diet, there are a lot of rules. Um, You have to have, uh, you know, you do reduce red meat. You don't have very much red meat. It's uh, favoring chicken and fish, but even not a whole lot of either of those some dairy, some eggs, maybe no more than about four a week. And olive oil is, if you're going to cook in anything, it's olive oil that you cook with. So um, some olive oil as well. And, and, and within that, the people can pick and choose what they're, going to, what they're going to have. Did they write it all down in a food journal just so you guys could get a sense of what it was they were eating? Yeah, they did. They, they tracked um, what they ate. And you know, we, we track very, very carefully and our registered dietitians call on the phone and say, I want to make sure exactly what you're doing. And that's helpful to the participants so they know if they're adhering to the guidelines. It's helpful to us, helpful to us too, because then we can see what these diet guidelines are, are doing. For example, when a person follows a Mediterranean diet and they're choosing oil and they're choosing their meats, even lean meat, you discover that the foods they're eating don't end up really being low calorie foods. And in order to be satisfied with that way of eating, you end up having a fair amount of calories. You know, olive oil packed with calories, same with chicken fat. On a vegan diet, people could choose to eat as much as they wanted. But when we added up the calories they were taking in, it turned out they were getting full on far fewer calories than before. High fiber diets just are satisfying. So people's calorie intake actually went down, even though the participants weren't really aware of it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was like, I wonder if that's a byproduct of there being more fiber uh, eating the vegan diet compared to the Mediterranean diet. Were you able to go in there and really say, well, you know, on a vegan diet, they're eating X number of grams of fiber. 
more than those currently on the Mediterranean diet. We could track all that. And, and what you said is exactly right. It's, it's, it's higher in fiber, but it's more than that. Because you're eating more carbohydrate, despite the fact that people imagine that carbohydrate is a calorie bomb, it's the opposite. Four calories per gram of carbohydrate compared to nine calories per gram of any kind of fat. So you're eating more fiber, more complex carbohydrate, more water. You know, you have an apple. And why is that apple heavy? It's because of all the water content. And so that's all filling. And so people think they're putting away the food. But the truth of the matter is your calorie intake is really rather modest. All right, let's talk about some of the good that came out of the Mediterranean diet here, because I do believe that uh, it did lower the blood pressure as well as the risk of stroke, despite the fact that participants lost an average of 0.0 pounds. Right. So uh, why do we think that was the case? Yeah, that was that was, was a bit of a surprise. Um, things were not going well for the Mediterranean diet with regard to weight. It's not a good diet for weight loss. It's also a terrible diet for getting your cholesterol down. Uh, this is a bit of a surprise. Cholesterol does not drop very well on a Mediterranean diet. But when it came to blood pressure, the people in the vegan group, their blood pressure came down, but it came down even more in the Mediterranean group. And that, Chuck, is not a fluke. There was another study that just came out where researchers tested uh, 60 people on a salt-restricted diet, 60 more people on a Mediterranean diet plus salt restriction. 60 more people on a DASH diet, you know, that the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, DASH diet plus salt restriction. And the winner was the Mediterranean in that case. There was no vegan group, but the Mediterranean diet caused uh, blood pressure to drop. And I got to tell you, Chuck, if I had to guess, it's not the low-fat milk. It's not the chicken. It's not the fish. I think it's the polyphenols in the extra virgin olive oil. I think that's what is actually doing it. They, it, they seem to have a, a, a blood pressure lowering effect. All right. And, and just to rehash here, this, this newer study that you're talking about, it was salt restricted across the board. So right. before we get into the olive oil effect, and that's like opening Pandora's box, you know, when it comes to uh, talking health, oil is a hot topic, man. But let's stick with salt for just a second. So salt restricted across the board, how much alone does sodium content um, reduce or increase a person's blood pressure? Is that a number one? It's the first thing doctors recommend, but it's surprisingly ineffective. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's good to limit salt, but it is it really knocks down your blood pressure just a hair, a couple of points. Um, and then when people go further and really start limiting animal products and animal fat, that's when you see a much bigger effect. So that's why vegan diets are better, even if you, whether you limit salt or not. But the Mediterranean diet uh, scored some points here. And again, I think in this case, this is really beyond the salt reduction. I think it's these uh, compounds that are in the olive oil. All right. Yeah. Now let's nerd out a little bit for those of us who aren't familiar with polyphenols. What exactly are these things, these compounds? Yeah. Well, you, you take your bottle of, of extra virgin olive oil. In fact, take a bottle of regular olive oil and a bottle of corn oil, and then your extra virgin olive oil, put it next to it. They look completely different. You know, the corn oil is a little bit tan, the olive oil is sort of similar, but the extra virgin olive oil has kind of a greenish cast to it. And the reason is that it hasn't been heated. When you're extracting the oil the usual way, uh, use, use heat to extract the oil from the uh, olives. Extra virgin, 
It's not. It's just pressed out. And so the polyphenols are still in there and they have this kind of greenish cast and they are biologically active. They, in your bloodstream, they will help the smooth muscle to relax. They seem to improve blood flow. Um, and if you think about it, uh, they are not alone. Uh, people have been talking about green tea as a source of polyphenols, uh, green vegetables as well. Uh, there's even some in, in uh, cocoa powder and in a number of other foods and fruits and, and vegetables in general are very high in these things. And what are you doing with olive oil? Taking 10,000 olives, <laughs> pressing out the polyphenols and putting them in a bottle. And just as we were able to track, I guess, fiber content and and all the other nutrients with our particular study, were we able to break down polyphenols in the plant-based or the vegan diet exclusively versus how much the people on the Mediterranean diet um, were getting? That was not part of the study. It would theoretically be possible, uh, though, because we know exactly how many tomatoes and cucumbers and oranges and bananas and brown rice, everybody ate. And so Honest Team could be tasked with trying to track down how much polyphenols everybody ate. That would be that would be theoretically possible. And by the way, let me make it clear that although there are polyphenols in olives and in olive oil, I am not suggesting that that's the only source or even the preferred source because what comes along with them in the olive oil? Calories, calories, and more calories. And that's the reason when people eat these foods, they, you get a lot of polyphenols, but man, your weight does not, does not, does not get the, the payoff that you're looking for. Yeah. You know what? Let's go ahead and uh, do it a little bit earlier than I had planned, but let's open up the doctor's mailbag because Mia has a question. You had mentioned green tea and a little bit in the cocoa powder as well, but she's wondering about those polyphenols and what are some other lower fat sources that she might be able to turn to other than olive oil? Okay. Well, I mentioned already green tea, uh, green vegetables in general, fruits and vegetables are good sources. Uh, but let me, let me put one at the top of that list. The, the whole berry group are very rich in polyphenols. They're rich in many other antioxidants as well. And Americans are kind of berry neglectors. So get those blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, put them on your morning oatmeal, and uh, they will love you back. All right. And again, if you have a question for Dr. Barnard, go ahead, post that in the comments or in the chat, and we will get to as many as we possibly can. Um, do you find by and large, though, if somebody is eating that plant-based diet, that healthy plant-based diet, is there a risk that they could become deficient, not getting enough polyphenols? Or is that another instance where if you're eating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, you got nice, uh, that power plate, you're serving it up to a tea every time you sit down to eat. Are you just kind of naturally going to get the right amount that you need? Yes. I, I, what you said, Chuck, is exactly right. You're going to get the polyphenols you need. A person on a vegan diet gets a much higher antioxidant load, including the polyphenol antioxidants, compared to a person eating meat. You know, steak, chicken breast, fish, these are not good sources of it, and but the, uh, not good sources of the polyphenols. So fruits and vegetables are... The reason olive oil has polyphenols is it comes from an olive. An olive is a fruit, and all of its fruit cousins are loaded with polyphenols. So, um, and the, the the point about olive oil being a good source is just that they go to the factory and they just really concentrate it in a form that nature didn't really intend. So they're concentrating the polyphenols, they're concentrating the calories of all the fat grams. All right. Well, clearly you're not advocating for dumping a gallon of olive oil on every meal that you eat, but you did mention that extra virgin olive oil in particular seems to have the higher polyphenol 
content compared to just regular olive oil. What's the difference between the two there? Uh, the, the, the difference between the polyphenols and uh, extra virgin olive oil and regular olive oil? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, day and night. Um, and, and it's really because of the heat that's used in the extraction process. So and, uh, no, don't get me wrong. Um, that's part of, that's one of the reasons why a lot of cooks use regular olive oil, not extra virgin. Um, you can, it's there, it's been heated, you can heat it up, you can cook it at a higher temperature. The extra virgin olive oil isn't really used for high temperature cooking. It's used to dribble on things, to give it that little extra flavor. But to be clear, I am actually not recommending that people consume extra virgin olive oil. I'm using it really as an example of why do you see the Mediterranean diet having no benefit for weight, no benefit for cholesterol, but a benefit for blood pressure. And it's because we're doing this odd thing. We're taking all these fruits, squeezing out the polyphenols, but a lot of calories go with it. So you're getting this calorie bomb that's got the polyphenols too. Brings down your blood pressure, expands your waistline at the same time. All right. So riddle me this then. I can just see though, even though you're not advocating for eating olive oil, um, I can just see somebody thinking like, well, okay, let me go to the drive-thru. I'll get my fries, I'll get my burger, and I'll splash on a little bit of olive oil, and I'm going to be okay. This has to be something that researchers have taken into account. So if somebody's eating a really meaty diet and they load up with that olive oil, are they still going to see those same benefits? Chuck, it's hysterical that you would say that. Um, William Costelli, who used to run the Framingham Heart Study, this is the, the, the granddaddy of all these prospective studies, started in Framingham, Massachusetts, 1949. Uh, William Costelli told me exactly that, uh, that back when they first found that eating more plant-based foods was better, that having vegetable oils was better than animal fats like butter. Guys would go out, the research team would go out, and they knew they were going to a burger joint. And they would have a little shot glass of olive oil before they would go go there, thinking that this would counteract the cholesterol-raising effect of the burgers. It does not do that. It does not bring your cholesterol down at all. It's just another load of fat. It happens to have these polyphenols in it. So even though that's been the, the kind of the focus of what we've been talking about, Chuck, that is not a reason to be having it. That said, you're in an Italian place and a little bit of extra virgin olive oil happens to dribble its way down your salad. I wouldn't go into a panic. Because yes, it's loaded with calories, but uh, as far as fats go, it's a it's a helpful fat. Yeah, and that that kind of brings us to David's question. Is I know we're talking like a little bit of a drizzle here, a little bit of a dash there, but I mean, is it possible to quantify what a safe recommended amount would be? Is it one tablespoon? Is it two tablespoons per day? How much? How little should we be targeting here? About four tablespoons is what was used in the Predimed trial, and that's what we were using as well. Um, in our trial. So that's enough to bring your blood pressure down, but it's also enough to stop your weight loss. So again, that's why we're not saying a person should have it, but that, that's the amount that people can use. If you are a person who is trying to lose weight or you're trying to deal with insulin resistance, or you're trying to deal with a hormonal issue like menstrual pain or endometriosis, these are all conditions where more dietary fat turns out to be harmful to you. So that's why we take all these oils out or, or, or you'll never eliminate all the, all the oils that are naturally in foods, but you can stop adding them to foods. All right. You know what? Let's see if we can do some technology here. I want to crunch some numbers live while we're doing this. Hey, Siri, how many, how many grams of fat are in four tablespoons of olive oil? Here's what I found. 
477 calories and four tablespoons of olive oil. That is a that is a healthy dose. Calories from fat, uh, almost all of them, as a matter of fact. And well, that's that because that took me right back to football news, and we don't need that today. <laughs> anyway, um, but Chuck, what you did is really important. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, what you did is really important. People imagine. That if I'm having a good fat, a healthy fat, uh, extra virgin olive oil, I mean, even the name virgin, I mean, you, you know, this is like going to be so wonderful and healthful, um, non-controversial, but so packed with calories that it stops your weight loss dead. Um, and that's what we saw in, in the study. People got together every week live in our office and the people on the Mediterranean diet, you could just see the smiles fading week after week when they were doing exactly what they were supposed to on a Mediterranean diet, they wanted to lose weight and it did not happen. And that's because the fish and the chicken have fat in them with calories. And that olive oil does too. It's a good type of fat, but the calories are there, just as you said. And and the study was designed so that nobody could say, well, I'm just stubborn. My body's stubborn. It doesn't want to lose weight. Everybody who did the study also, they they did both. They did the vegan diet and then they did the Mediterranean diet. And and so they all at one point or another got to experience that weight loss, correct? That's exactly right. And, And the most tragic thing was the people who, they're all omnivores coming into the study. The ones who went on a vegan diet you know, it takes a couple of weeks to kind of adapt to it and find what you really like. But they were losing weight like crazy. They had, they loved it. By week 16, everybody was sold. They thought the vegan diet is the way to get your cholesterol down, to get your weight down. At that point, the research protocol said, stop. Now you have to stop being vegan. Now you've got to start the Mediterranean diet. You've got to have fish again. You've got to have chicken again. You've got to bring in oil. And they didn't want to. And the weight started coming back. And that was painful for them, I have to say. Uh, but they were really good research volunteers. They put both diets to the test and uh, the numbers tell the tale. All right. I want to go back. Uh, we got the calories on the olive oil a second ago, but I wanted to just be thorough here. Uh, 14 grams of fat per tablespoon. So you multiply that by four. What do you get? 56 grams. And that's going to be, what, 84% of your daily recommended uh fat total? So Maybe, but to, to tell you the truth, a, a person can get by on 30 grams of fat per day or less. Yeah. yeah this, you, don't, you don't need this huge amount of fat. And, and, and think of it this way. People are used to thinking of this with sugar. Let's say you have sugar cane. You go to the store, you, you can get a little chunk of sugar cane. How much of that can you eat? Not very much because it's part, the, the fiber is in there. Um, the pulp is in there. It's, it's a plant. But if you have a factory that pulls the sugar out of the sugar cane and puts that pure sugar into something, uh, some candy bar, whatever, you can eat the whole thing. An olive has a trace of fat. And you can eat an olive and you get a little trace of fat. Fair enough. But did you ever eat 45 olives? No, you don't. Because you get fiber in there and it fills you up. To take all those olives, throw away all the fiber and all the pulp, and then put it in the bottle and market virgin, it's still now a refined product where you've taken uh, the fat and just concentrated it in a form that nature never had, had in mind at all. All right, let's go ahead and grab a couple of questions here from the exam roomies. Uh, Livy is wondering, let's go back to salt here for a moment. I know that we were able to track all of this. Um, by and large, did you find that with our study, our award-winning study, that both groups ate roughly the same amount of sodium every day? Yes, they did. Um, 
people came in and uh, when they began their diets, for the most part, people were reducing their salt intake in the course of, of following the diet because it was healthy. Uh, but the, the reduction in salt intake in both groups, the Mediterranean group and the vegan group, was almost identical. All right. And let's go to Christina. Christina here seems to be maybe a little bit skeptical, a little bit concerned about trying the uh, exclusively vegan diet. She's wondering how much of the weight loss in the study was due to muscle mass and bone density fluctuations? Uh, virtually none. Um, it's almost entirely fat loss. You don't, in a 16-week trial, you don't lose bone. That's just not going to happen. Um, now, what will happen, if you lose fat, if you lose a lot of fat, you will lose some lean body mass that was there just to support the fat. Uh, but really in that period of time, the weight loss you're seeing is predominantly fat loss. All right. And uh, here's an interesting question from Barb. And, you know, it is kind of fitting here. She's wondering whether eating bread or pastries could affect a person's cholesterol level. So maybe the bread or the pastry, the sweet treat is made with eggs and regular butter. So could that then account for some elevated cholesterol levels in a person. Yeah, yeah. It, pastries, when they're made with butter or they're made with shortening or any kind of saturated fat, your LDL cholesterol will rise. Saturated fat in any form, animal fat, including chicken fat, or even the saturated fat that's in salmon. Yeah, yeah there are traces of saturated fat there too. Um, the saturated fat in coconut oil or palm oil, they will raise LDL cholesterol. The other thing is that bread... The bread itself, the grain itself, the complex carbohydrate will not raise your cholesterol. However, if it's white bread and refined and the, the fiber has all been taken out, your triglycerides might go up. Those are the blood fats. That'll happen. You know what? Let's uh, bounce back to uh, the research here um, and talk a little bit more about the connection between the Mediterranean diet and that essentially being brain food. Because a lot of people think if you're eating fish, that is the ultimate brain food. But what do we know in terms of the effect that a Mediterranean diet actually has in terms of cognitive ability? This is one of the real tragedies, I have to say, of recent research. Um, First of all, if you look at just the Mediterranean diet itself, people in Mediterranean countries following their traditional diets, the diets of the 1950s, 1960s, somewhat less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease compared to somebody, say, in North America eating a lot of fast food. And that was attributed to the fact that uh, many people in North America will eat more animal fat and that kind of thing. So you would think a Mediterranean diet would reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. The New England Journal of Medicine, just this past summer, I think it was the beginning of August, published an article on the MIND diet. And the MIND diet was created by Martha Claire Morris, who was a wonderful researcher. She combined a Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, took sort of, I guess what they were thinking of was the best of both. It was vegetables and fruits and so forth, but there was a fair amount of fish and animal products. And they looked at cognition over time and they showed that in people at risk for, uh, for dementing illness due to age, the diet didn't work. It just didn't work at all. And what we're guessing is that it's, it's sort of a halfway step. It's reducing the animal fat, but not getting you to where you need to be, which is pretty close to zero. 
All right. Um, let's take a question from Mary here. We're going to talk about a plant-based source of fat. She's wondering about peanuts. She says, even though peanuts are a plant food, is peanut butter still bad for you because of a high level of saturated fat? Okay. Take your, take your peanut oil, take a jar of peanut oil and, and look at it, put it on your shelf and see what it looks like. Is it a solid waxy fat? No, it's not. It's a liquid oil. That's a sign that it's not saturated fat for the most part. Now you can put it in your refrigerator and does it stay liquid or does it harden up? If it were olive oil, it gets hardened in the refrigerator. But does the peanut oil do that? Uh-uh, it stays liquid. And that's a sign that not only is there not a lot of saturated fat in there, there's not a lot of monounsaturated. Monounsaturates in olive oil or canola oil are the ones that harden up in the refrigerator. So our little visual test here has shown there's not a lot of saturated fat in there. So if you went online, what you'd see is, oh, in a typical, oh, say, uh, a typical serving of, of peanut oil, there might be something like a gram of saturated fat, a gram and a half, uh, which is dramatically lower than animal fats or, say, coconut oil or palm oil. All right. Uh, Jane, we've piqued her interest today. She says, look, I'm interested in trying a whole food plant-based diet, but she says, I've seen some research suggest that it can lead to increased acid reflux. Is this true? What do we know about that? I have to say, I'm surprised to hear her say that. Uh, give it a try. If you have acid reflux, run, don't walk to a vegan diet and see what it'll do for you. Because we see people where it really ends up curing them. Uh, GERD, you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease, a uh, very common thing. And when people go on a plant-based diet, they very often say goodbye to their GERD. Goodbye, GERD. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, GERD. Oh, wow. um, by, the way, by the way, hey, you're looking for another reason not to take Wagovi. Um, the, these weight loss injections, unfortunately, tend to keep the food sitting in the stomach longer. The stomach then keeps cranking out acid and you end up with a lot of acid reflux. All right. Uh, Bentley here says, my husband needs to lose about 60 pounds. Man, she's just selling him up the river. My husband needs to lose about 60 pounds and is asking if he can still have bread and alcohol along the way. If so, Dr. Barnard, how much? Okay. If his goal is just to lose weight, then with bread, it's all about what goes on the bread. So the bread itself is fine. Um, I wouldn't worry about that at all. And there are plenty of vegan breads. And if you don't feel like reading all the labels, Rye bread, always vegan, uh, or virtually always vegan. And then if what goes on it is ham, <laughs> not good. Um, but if what goes on it is a light hummus or something like that, you're going to be much, 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 much better. So bread, we don't, we wouldn't set a particular limit to it. Um, be careful about really fatty baked goods, croissants. There, I mean, that's a fat sponge. You don't want that. With regard to alcohol, alcohol isn't going to interfere with his weight uh, loss efforts really. But keep in mind, alcohol has issues. Um, yes, there is some literature suggesting that it may reduce the risk of heart disease or the risk of Alzheimer's disease slightly. Uh, researchers are a little skeptical of those claims, but no nonetheless, there is some evidence in that direction. But alcohol greatly increases the risk of certain cancers, fatty liver, all kinds of other things. So be careful. And the U.S. government would say for men, don't have more than two drinks a day. That's really pretty liberal. Um, it should be modest and intermittent with uh, most days, no alcohol at all. 
Is it fair to say that you could kind of put alcohol almost in the same camp as olive oil and that, yeah, there is some upside to it, but you can get those same health benefits from healthier sources without all of the potential negative side effects that could come with them as well? You know, I, I think what you're saying is a, that's a really cool way of putting it. You know, there are polyphenols in red wine. Um, why? Because they were in the grape. So you can get it from the grape. And as a matter of fact, you know, researchers have been studying what if you take the grape juice and you don't, you just don't ferment it. Um, you just leave it as what nature made for you. And people have actually found cognitive benefits from grape juice, blueberry juice. I mean, these, the pigments are what have those anthocyanins in them and the polyphenols are in there. I wonder though, like if there's a big difference in terms of the benefit you would get from, you know, one of those more processed forms of grape juice that come from concentrate and have more than just grape juice in the ingredients versus a freshly squeezed something like that. Do you think that there would be a difference between something that's ultra fresh versus something that's probably been sitting on the store shelf for a hot minute? It's a good question. And you would imagine that the one that you buy at Whole Foods is going to be better than the one you buy at the <laughs> grocery store or something like that. The, the research doesn't necessarily work out that way, though. Uh, researchers at, at the University of Cincinnati years ago brought in older people in their uh, upper 70s, and they asked them to have two cups of grape juice every day for a three-month period. They showed that their cognition improved, their learning improved over time. And the grape juice they were using was the stuff right at the regular grocery store. Well, I'll be daggone. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I guarantee it was actual grape. There was grape juice in there, and it was not just a grape-flavored <laughs> drink, right? Um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's actual grape juice. But, yeah. but you know, your point is a good one, that when people want to market a juice, they'll throw sugar and all kinds of other goofy stuff in there that you don't need. Naturally, naturally. Okay, let's uh, open the scope of the conversation a little bit wider here today. Uh, take a question from Ivan, who is not concerned whatsoever with weight loss. In fact, Ivan is in need of a little bit of an opposite uh, effect here. He says, look, I'm a guy. My BMI is 19. That seems a bit low to me. How can I maintain or even gain weight while eating a plant-based diet? So is 19, that seems a little bit low to this lay person. How does it sound to you as a doctor? It sounds fine, actually. Oh, okay. um, yeah, it, it's perfectly fine. Um, if you look at the BMI charts, you know, body mass index is not a perfect thing because different people have different frames. But the, what is, what's called the normal range, which is set because it means you're at the least risk for developing diabetes, for developing heart disease, for developing certain cancers. The low risk area is between 18 and a half and 25. So 19 is a great place to be. Um, now, if you, want to, if you want to gain weight for some reason, there's not a health reason to, to, to gain weight. If for some reason you want to do that though, be really careful. Let's say you just eat more food or you eat fatty foods. You can gain weight. If you eat a huge amount of fat, that's a ton of calories. Where is it going to go? It's going to go all in your belly and it's not going to be what you want. You're gaining a fat layer. So if, if weight gain is what you, for some reason, want to feel better or whatever, uh, what you want is not fat. You don't want to gain fat. You want to gain muscle mass. So that does not come so much from food. That comes from the gym. So um, you don't need iron in your diet. You need iron in your hands. And you know, if you uh, uh, get on a weight gain program, it's really got to be an exercise book. All right. Tobias is posing a interesting 
kind of uh, hypothetical here for us today. He's like, listen, uh, I've been eating a really ultra low calorie diet, but I'm concerned even if I switch over to a healthy, normal calorie diet, I'm going to start gaining a lot of weight just because I'm coming off of calorie restriction. Is that going to be the case by and large if you're really calorie deprived for a certain amount of time and then no matter where those calories come from, once you get off of that restriction, you're going to start putting that weight back on? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, there is a rebound effect. Uh, when people have suppressed their calorie intake for a period of time, the body does fight back. And you will see this in the form of your appetite is out of control. You just ate and you want to keep eating, keep eating. Um, that's a problem. It's something to be on the lookout for. Um, but the answer to it is to simply make sure that what you're eating is a normal portion size. And as long as the calories out don't exceed the calories, right? Let me make sure I'm saying this right. As long as the calories out, are equal to the calories in, you're not going to be gaining weight. All right. Uh, let's take a question from Faye, also weight related in a way. Uh, she says, I'm eating a whole food plant-based diet, but I'm concerned about fatty liver disease. She says, I don't have a gallbladder. Is there anything I should be avoiding or anything else I should be eating to help her? Okay. Uh, fatty liver disease is more common than it has ever been in human history. Um, and the reasons for it, Number one, eating fatty foods, but you're already avoiding those. That's a good thing. Uh, number two, a lot of sugary stuff. Uh, when people have large amounts of sugar, that will go to the liver and the liver will make fat out of it. Um, and number three, alcohol. Be really cautious with alcohol. Either skip it completely or have it be very modest and intermittent. All right, let's take a question next from Rachel, who has hypothyroidism, wondering how long it takes, on average, to go from unhealthy to healthy if you have that condition. You know, we need more research on hypothyroidism. There has not yet been a study on people who are following a low-fat plant-based diet to see its effect on hypothyroidism. Uh, many people are eager to see such a study for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you look at people in the world, uh, in large prospective studies, those people on vegan diets are the group that is least likely to develop hypothyroidism. Uh, secondly, we know that for some people, it, it appears that dietary antigens, the proteins in dairy products, for example, seem to uh, trigger the antibodies that attack your thyroid. So if you're avoiding dairy, that ought to help. The third piece of, of good evidence is that a lot of individuals have done this on their own. They were hypothyroid. They had Hashimoto's thyroiditis. They changed their diet and the disease improved or, or went away. But nobody's done a study where they bring in, say, 100 people and see how many of them uh, improve and how many of them don't. Uh, but there's every reason to be on a low-fat plant-based diet. Jump in, give it a try and see what it does for you. And don't fire your endocrinologist. Uh, if, you're, if you're on uh, thyroid medication, Take it. If you've got a testing regimen, follow it. Uh, you want to make sure that you're you're giving yourself the, the uh, care that you do need. All right. Julia here, wondering about amino acids. Interesting. Are animal amino acids different from the amino acids that are found in plants, Dr. Barnard? Okay. Uh, amino acids, for those who are unsure what this word means, that the uh, amino acids are the building blocks of protein. So if I had a really powerful microscope and I could look at a protein molecule, it's a long sort of a strand. It's, it's really like a necklace and each, each bead in the necklace is an amino acid. And there are 20 different ones. 
and they are in animal products and they are in plants. And people used to think that plants were missing one or another amino acid. They're not. All plants have all of the amino acids. However, the profile differs a little bit. Whereas with uh, animal products, you might see a little bit more of one or another amino acid uh, in plant products, a slightly different uh, collection, but they're all there in both sources. But one thing should be remembered is back 2016, researchers at Harvard showed that if a person is consuming animal products, and if they were theoretically to swap animal protein, take that out, replace it with plant protein, their mortality would go down. Let me be clear. The plant-based proteins are associated with less risk of dying at any given time. And that's partly because animal protein comes along with bad fat and cholesterol and salmonella, E. coli, other things you don't want. But the other half may relate to the amino acids themselves. The amino acids are the same, but there is more in animal products. For example, there's more methionine. Uh, and some people have suggested that's not good. You're getting too much of these things, and that could be toxic and overdose. Stay tuned for more research, but the bottom line is that the plant proteins give you the amino acids you need, and any normal combination of plant foods gives you all of the amino acids in exactly the proportion your body can use. All right. Uh, we were talking today about our vegan and Mediterranean diet study, but uh, let's flash back to another study that uh, you did, Dr. Barnard, our researchers here, and that is the study on menopause and reducing hot flash symptoms. Andrea has a follow-up to that. She says, look, I just do not like soybeans. No matter how I cook them, I just don't like them. She's wondering if she can get the same benefit, though, from eating edamame. Uh, you can try. Um, edamame the little things they bring you at the Japanese restaurant and cute little pods, um, those are baby soybeans. And if we had been less impatient and had left them on the vine a little longer to mature, they make more and more of the isoflavones, which that's the kind of the magic elixir in the soy. So an ed- edamame might work. Give it a try. There's no reason not to have it. It's totally healthy. But the isoflavone content is, is higher in the mature soybeans. Now, if you are not a fan of the mature soybeans, let me give you a quick tip. Um, let's say you take your instant pot, you know, your pressure cooker, and you put in your non-GMO organic soybeans and cook them up. Uh, use them like pine nuts. Put them on your salad and spray a little Bragg's aminos on there, little seasoned rice vinegar. They, they, they're, they're, they're nice. They, they taste good. Or for extra credit, once they're cooked, put them in the oven. Put them on a baking sheet. Set your oven at 360 Put a little parchment paper on the baking sheet and the soybeans on top. They're already cooked from the Instant Pot, but now you're going to do one more step. Into the oven they go. An hour later, they come out crispy and toasted and delicious. Put them in a plastic bag, take them to work, and, and it's, it's a nice snack. Or if life is too short to actually cook yourself, you can go on to uh, the Laura brand soybean company. They will sell you toasteds, which are pre-toasted. Uh, soybeans. So you might try these different ways and, and you'll find a way that you like. 
All right. And let's end with a callback to the last episode you and I did together, and that was on uh, fracture risk for people eating a plant-based diet. And Michelle is concerned about bone loss in this case, wants to keep her bones nice and strong. She's wondering what should she be eating, Dr. Barnard, to really even reverse bone loss that she may have already sustained? Okay. Uh, great question and an and important one for many, many people. Uh, number one, you know about calcium. But you also know that the calcium in milk is only about 30% absorbable, but the calcium from green leafy vegetables typically higher. Uh, Brussels sprouts double that of compared to cow's milk. Not that they're so rich in, in calcium, but the calcium they have, I mean, they, they are reasonably rich in calcium, but the calcium that is absorbable is much higher. So that's a good thing. A couple of exceptions, spinach, Swiss chard, their calcium is not very absorbable, unfortunately, but broccoli and the, most of the other green vegetables, very, very high. So number one, get your calcium. Greens, beans, we'll give it to you. Uh, if you want, you can do calcium fortified plant milks, but most people don't need that, but you can if you want. Now you've got your calcium, it's in your digestive tract. How do you absorb it? That's where vitamin D comes in. Vitamin D from the sun will help your body to uh, absorb that calcium. If you live in North Dakota and it's January, you're not getting much sun. Uh, so in that case, you'll want to supplement. And most doctors nowadays would say about 2,000 international units, but your own doctor may have his or her own ideas about that. Number three, give your bones a reason to live. If they are exercising, that helps them to build their strength. If you are sedentary all the time, your bony structure is not going to do so well. And the proof of this, tennis players, if you compare their the arm that they use on the racket, it's got denser bones. Why? Because they're using that, that all the time. The muscles are pulling on the bones, making them stronger. So you can do the same with exercise. That's really it. Beyond that, talk to your doctor and uh, make sure your doctor is following your progress. That is an interesting nugget about the tennis players. Did you get that from Kim Williams, perchance? Is that <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure it's true for Kim. because Kim is the best tennis player that I have ever met. Um, but yeah, it's, it's true. It's true for men. It's true for women. And if you look at their dominant arm, the, the bones are denser in that arm than the arm that they're not using so much. All right. And a final thought here on the Mediterranean diet versus the plant-based diet or the vegan diet here. It seems like hands down, the vegan diet wins in terms of overall health, weight loss, just checking all those boxes. Absolutely. Um, because the, the polyphenols that you want, which are in olives, you could make a mistake and just concentrate them in this oily mix and swallow them that way and drive your blood pressure down. Don't do that. Use them and get the polyphenols in the source that nature really intended, and that's in whole plants. When you do that, you not only get a blood pressure lowering effect, your cholesterol comes down, your waistline gets snugger, everything gets, uh, what I mean is you're going to lose weight in an easy way, and uh, you get all the health benefits of plant-based eating. And if you want to check out the study for yourself, there's a link to it right now in the episode notes down below. And we need to also, Dr. Barnard, quickly thank our friends from the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for their continued support of the exam room and the Physicians Committee. They support organizations just like ours that carry on the love that Greg had for animals. And they do it in a number of ways. Number one, by promoting plant-based health, but they also work to end animal abuse. Tirelessly, they do this. And they also emphasize programs that promote systemic change so that we can all benefit as well. And you can visit them online, see all the good that they're doing by logging onto their website, gregoryriderfund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, 
Fund.org. Sign up for their newsletter and see everything that Allison Mahoney and the team there are doing to really carry on Greg's extraordinary legacy. And as always, I mean, I know you're as a big a fan of the Ryder Fund as I am, Dr. Barnard. Oh, absolutely. Um, Gregory Ryder was the most compassionate and kind person. And Allison Mahoney and her team have carried that spirit forward so wonderfully. And I'm so grateful to, to you, Allison, and to everybody for bringing that support. And I hope to see Allison and, and some other members from the Writer Fund uh, at the November 7th live show with the Esselstons at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Dr. Barnard, you and I and the Esselstons, we're going to have fun that night, my friend. We are going to have a grand old time. Can I wear red socks? I, I, it counts. Just something <laughs> red. I know you got a lot of blue and white in your wardrobe. We've established that. But red socks, that works. Absolutely. It's going to be a really fun evening, I got to say. Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much, as always, for your wit, your wisdom, and your nutrition insight, my friend. Well, thank you, Chuck. Dr. Barnard will be back with us again next Wednesday for the Exam Room Live. So that's going to be noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. Links to both right now are in the episode notes. Hope you can join us. Get your question answered live during the show. Or, of course, always you can catch the replay right back here first thing on Thursday on the podcast. And the week after that... November 8th, our old friend Dr. Will Bolsowitz is coming back. We haven't had a chance to speak with him in a couple of months, so it's going to be great to get a gut health checkup from him. So be thinking about what it is you might want to ask Dr. B, the gut health MD. Now, also a couple of months ago, we had Doug Evans on the show, the Sprout guy. And this guy is just a wealth of knowledge about the nutritional powerhouse that these sprouts can be. So no doubt that he's actually seen this new study that was done in Japan, but I wanted to share it with you as well. And it's on polysulfides, which is something that Doug and I talked about. The polysulfides that are found in broccoli sprouts. Now, these are chemical compounds that are found not just in broccoli sprouts, but naturally in a lot of foods and they have these antioxidant effects. So they go in there, these polysulfides, and they root out all of these harmful free radicals that we have in our body. It's kind of like a TKO type knockout effect for diseases like diabetes and cancer. So this study from the Graduate School of Science at Osaka Metropolitan University finds that broccoli sprouts have this major boom in polysulfide production during the germination process. And in fact, by the fifth day of germination, there's a 20-fold increase in polysulfide content. And researchers believe that is where the potent health benefits of these sprouts really begins to kick in. And the findings to this degree, that 20-fold increase, really caught researchers off guard. They say that the discovery was completely by chance and very surprising. And the lead researcher, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Shingo Katsumatsu, believes that the discovery could lead to new preventative approaches and treatments for neurodegenerative diseases and strokes and cancer and inflammation and other oxidative stress-related diseases. So a lot of benefits there. 
And in case you were wondering, the polysulfide content in broccoli sprouts, it dwarfs what you would find in mature broccoli. It's not even close. We're talking three and a half times or more. And in this study, they also looked at some other vegetables, garlic and cabbage that were on there. But the difference between the sprouts and those, it's even greater than with the sprouts and the mature broccoli. So load up on sprouts. Cheers to your health. I really love sprouts on top of a sandwich, literally. We'll just get some of that Ezekiel bread that I like, and we'll put some hummus on that. And then we'll put maybe a little bit of lettuce or spinach, slice a tomato, maybe a little bit of kimchi, and then boom, we'll sprout it up. And man, you want to talk about flavor country, my friends. This is healthy flavor country. It is so daggone good. It is so daggone good. And of course, if you're like a super hummus fan like me, then you put a side of baby carrots and hummus with that. Yes, sir. Please, may I have another? I would like some more. That is so good. So, so good. So Sprout Up, we've got a link to the study for you to check out in the episode notes. Pretty cool study there. And my question to you right now is, how's your health IQ? Do you feel like you've raised it by a point or two today? We talked about a lot of different things. The Mediterranean diet, the vegan diet, edamame, hot flashes, sprouts. We covered a lot of ground. And if you feel like you learned something, pay it forward. Help the next person discover these potentially life-changing and even life-saving results from these studies. Easiest way to do that is to help us climb the podcast charts. Do that every time you follow, you subscribe, you leave a five-star rating. Every time somebody does that, it helps us climb a little bit higher. And the closer we get to the top, the easier it becomes for somebody to find this information when they're searching for answers. We want to be the number one nutrition show. So let's get there. Follow, subscribe, pay it forward, and let's help make the world a healthier place together. And don't forget November 7th, the big live and in-person show with the Esselstons at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Hope to see you there. And of course, the Hampton Roads Veg Fest in Chesapeake, Virginia, coming up October 28th. I'm going to be on stage around 2.15. So I hope to see you there. The event itself is at Chesapeake City Park that runs 11 to 5. There is a link to all of the information you need for that in the episode notes. It's going to be fun to go home to Hampton Roads and talk about health. My life has changed so much since I called Norfolk home and Hampton Roads home. So let's bring this one full circle, shall we? And looking ahead, November 18th, Houston, Texas, the Montgomery Heart and Wellness Summit. I'm going to be speaking there as well. Can't wait to see everybody. Lots of opportunities to come out and say hi. More on the horizon as we head into the new year, plus New York City coming your way a little bit later in November as well. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and raising our health IQs today. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.